Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years, and I've always been interested in how people make good investment decisions, and if it is possible to teach these skills in the family office context. This podcast speaks to investment and business thought leaders, as well as founders and experts in the investment world to hear their great stories and insights. Today, we have Peter Borish, CEO of Computer Trading Corporation, and formerly the founding partner and second-in-command at Tudor Investment Corporation. He is a co-founder and currently on the board of the Robin Hood Foundation, as well as being on the board of Math for America. I first met Peter 12 years ago when he graciously joined my advisory board, so I can attest to his excellent insight and encouragement. I'm curious, growing up, did you even know what the futures market was? Were you interested in finance at a young age? I actually was to a certain extent. So I have four sisters. I'm the only boy. I'm in the middle. And when I was young and sitting in the back of the car, I would be studying the back of baseball cards. And I think that's how I got my interest in numbers. I took a comics class when I was a senior in high school. And it really struck me as sort of the interesting analytical way to look at the world. It resonated with me. And then when I went to Michigan and I started taking econ classes, I just felt this is me. And I was interested in finance at that point. Now, my father was one of the early founders of the American Gas Association, the Trade Association for Natural Gas Industry. So he was involved as treasurer of helping launch the first natural gas mutual fund. I was at Michigan during the Iranian crisis. So markets and prices were always there. And I was very lucky after I graduated Michigan to be able to get a job at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Each step of the way put me further ingrained in terms of market activity, the intersection of policy decisions and how that would affect the movement of underlying prices. Did, did your dad have strong feelings about your career? Well, of course, they were very proud when I graduated Michigan and went to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. I think they were a little bit more skeptical where after three years at the Fed and I started looking at other jobs and I decided to take a job with this young guy that was coming off the floor of the common exchange from Memphis. And I'm like, yeah, this, there's something about him that, and even to this day, who's just a Besides being an all-around great guy, just the personality, the insight. I said, you know, I'm going to go work with him, Paul Tudor Jones. At that time, I don't even think the hedge fund was a really household name. It was more a commodity trading advisor. And they're like, what are you talking about? But that worked out okay. So yes, they were very proud, ultimately, of my career decisions. I've noticed a lot of parallels between folks who took an early interest in baseball and baseball stats and either good fund managers or good allocators. Do you think that baseball is a good analogy for good traders? I do. It is because it's a probability game and trading and risk management. I've always said the art of managing in baseball is really simple. Just don't leave your pitcher in there for one pitch too many. The manager's usually walking out to the mound after the pitcher gives up the three-run homer. The hard trade is to walk out before he gives up that 
three-run homer. The fans won't like it. And the great Tommy Lasorda once said, if you listen to the fans, you will eventually end up sitting in the seats with them. And that is relevant to trading and risk management because in our world, you're in the business of trying to make money. You're not in the business of trying to be right. And so you have to look at those opportunities and probability. And that's why baseball is one of the first sports to engage in analytics and data science, because there are a lot of games. There's a lot of at-bats and have significant probabilities. But I think when it comes to trading, that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with probabilities. And the definition of a good trade isn't inherently whether or not you made money because you could get lucky. The definition of a good trade is if you had the same setups, the same information and the same probabilities, would you make that trade again? If the answer is yes, even though you may have lost, particularly if you're a discretionary trader, you have to take that trade again. And as the the markets are really trying to take you out of your game. And as Derek Jeter once said, he goes, fans are always talking about the last game. We've got to put that behind us and think about the next game. A good coach knows that players have streaks and slumps. Is that also a good mindset for an allocator in making decisions about whether to keep a manager? Yes. And you can't suffer from the hot hand fallacy. If you've had five hits in a row or seven hits in a row, that the probability is you're going to have another hit. Because the reality is long run statistics are going to indicate that you're going to start moving toward the meet. So if you're a 300 hitter, you've had seven hits in a row, the likelihood is you might have go 0 for 7 the next time. It doesn't make you better. doesn't make you worse. So if you're an allocator, you really have to understand the strategy. And you can't make simple decisions and say, well, this person's historically had X percent drawdown because records are made to be broken. So if you allocate based on that, they're probably going to have a larger drawdown. That's just the nature of math. So how do you deal with that? Where that is, how does it fit within your portfolio? It's a really tough business. Taking that baseball one step further, an allocator is like a general manager. So if you allocate to me and I'm the player, you have to decide if I'm going through a bad run, have I lost my skills and I need to be cut from the team or am I just in a slump? And the next thing I say, which is so interesting because you're talking about baseball, is I call it the Wade Boggs phenomena. So Wade Boggs was a 300 hitter for the Red Sox for what, 10 years? Had one bad year. They let him go. He goes to the Yankees and then he has another 10 years. So batting 300 helps lead them to their first World Series, 3,000 hits, Hall of Fame, et cetera. So that general manager made that decision. And clearly that was incorrect. It's very, very difficult on both sides of the equation, the allocation decision and ultimately the manager itself trying to perform. So let's go back. 1982 is not a great year to be looking for a job on the street. Did you see yourself as going into policy? Did you want to work on the street? How did you end up working at the Fed? So I was fortunate that all I knew is that I wanted to be in New York City. I had a number of interviews. My personality as such is not really sort of the investment banker type. I think 1982 was probably as challenging or maybe more challenging than people who graduated in 09. So when I got the job, I was very 
grateful. And I thought to myself, Wall Street is littered with former Fed people, and it would be a tremendous opportunity for me at that young age to sort of going to postgraduate school and getting paid for it. And the people that were there at the Fed were very, very smart, really innovative, and some of them went on to tremendous success. And my bosses, remember, I'm just a a young kid. I worked on a paper. Think about that period of time, 1983, floating exchange rates after 10 years. I was sort of the data geek on that, running equations. And I learned so much because, you know, who knew, right, that Chicago Futures just started in 1973. And my career arc is a lot has to do with luck. When I joined the Fed in 1982, that's the year that S&P Futures started. When I joined with Paul at Tudor in 1985, that's when crude oil futures started. So the arc of my career was fortunate. A lot of the new financial futures markets were just developing. And that was, I think, one of the greatest strengths of Paul was willing to apply the techniques and his skills that he learned in the futures markets to these new financial futures markets, which were just burgeoning. We focus so much on the Fed chairman and the committee, but what is the internal culture of the New York Fed like? I can say, at least in my experiences, they really try to be intellectually honest when it comes to data in analysis. I think the one thing that you have to learn if you're a market participant is history is a single path. But as you go forward, it's a little bit like these hurricane cones. The further you go from the point of today, the larger the cone of uncertainty. And if you think it's going to be a direct path based on history, that's an incorrect assumption. So you really have to deal with different kinds of scenarios. And when I was there, helping in the early stages of trying to do forecasting. And I was a little gearheaded at that time using the Fed's computers and working with the other Federal Reserve in terms of developing forecasts. They're like, okay. And some of them were way out there, but they were willing to use it as an input. So I would say the culture is extraordinarily intellectually honest. They're not trying to reach an outcome, but markets are completely uncertain. And even today, where they're like, okay, we want to get down to 2%. My concern as a market participant is, I don't think that this is like an airplane landing, you know, that, okay, we're here, we're coming in, and here's a runway, and we're going to land, and all of a sudden, inflation's going to magically stop at 2%. There's a high probability, in my mind, that they're going to overshoot it to the downside. And that in itself has a whole different set of risks associated with it. So looking back now, the 80s were a major inflection point, and I think it'd be interesting to hear what the street was like, because you were bridging a, an era where people were still using paper charts. And by the end of the 80s, of course, everybody was using spreadsheets and computers and large data sets. You made such an important point right there. Our distinguishing factor at Tudor was the willingness to invest in computers, and that was 100%, I think, vision on the part of Paul. In other words, we invested in computers and we then were very aggressive in terms of data. 
So today where you can get data in tenths of a second, in some of the model building that I was doing, we would hire summer interns and they would come in and we would get books. And for example, the history of the Dow, and they would type in that data by hand, open, high, low, close. Trading was on weekends back then. You had a half day on Saturday. How do you adjust for that? Putting it in a spreadsheet. Excel at that time only had 3,000 rows. So less, you know, about a little over 10 years of data. If you assume there's 260 trading days in a year. And so the difference was even before that computers. So Tom DeMarc, who is known today for his DeMarc indicators, if you're familiar with that, you can get them on Bloomberg and elsewhere. He had the cleanest data. He had the best charts. Paul sent me, he was located in Racine, Wisconsin. He sent me out there to meet with Tom to try to see how do we get the data? How does he do that charge? How do we get them earlier on a Saturday? We ended up doing a JV. We worked together for a number of years. And as the computer came and their data, we were early on using that data and his models, or I helped develop models with that data, which was then called Tudor Systems Corporation, which ultimately when I left, then they seated me with my CTA at the Computer Trading Corporation. That was the genesis for all of it. And so innovation in data was something that we were most proud of. And when I was seconded to the Brady Commission after the 87 crash, all that data from that report on the market break came from us. None of the other big firms had it. We were the ones that were storing that data. What was the Brady Commission? The Brady Commission was the commission after the 87 crash in January of 88 that President Reagan put together to study the causes of reserve report. That was out of there. And that was sort of the term that brought in circuit breakers and the coordination between the cash markets, the futures markets, and the linkages among them. How did you first meet Paul and what was your first impression of him? At the time, Paul was chairman of the Finance Exchange, which was the subsidiary of the New York Fund Exchange. They were trying to start financial futures. At Five World Trade? Four. And in fact, in my little drawer here, I still have my, and particularly after 9-11, I still have my badge that got me down to the floor. And so he was chairman. Somehow they found my name because one of the things that I helped create, which today is still in use, is the Fed's trade-weighted dollar. And they were wanting to have a futures contract on the dollar index. And so I try to explain to people that it, you concentrate on a narrow enough subject, there's a very little competition. So not too many people were sitting there collecting data. And we use this dollar index at the Fed to help model in terms of what GDP would be because of the export imports. Clearly, you're seeing that today, a strong dollar, right? That's going to reduce exports, enhance imports, that X minus M gets smaller, that reduces GDP growth, et cetera. So all that stuff went into those models. So that's how I first met Paul. Now he was, again, he's a young man. I was a young man and we really got along and that's how it went. And I think I remember his first line before he even hired me was he wanted some help. And he said, could you come over after work and work on this thing? And we really only need a few lines of code. And then, of course, in this world, and even today, a few lines of codes turn into <laughs> a lot of hours. And that's how we started to get to know each other. And what was Tudor Systems Corp like at that point? Was it just an office? 
So Tudor Systems Corporation really didn't come into play until after I was there for two or three years. So Paul, again, in terms of, of, of insight, he being more of a discretionary trader, he realized that when he was not doing very well, it was the systems guys that tended to be doing better. So if you think about trading, a lot of trades are sort of what I call mean reversion or convergence trades. So the market's too stretched. You think it's going to go bad. So you sell that high. Trend followers or model-based traders are more divergent type traders, and they think that it's going to continue. And I being in, in with one very famous trend follower and we were there, he was meeting with a, an allocator and he told me, he goes, so the allocator asked him, so what's your position in the Euro? And he goes, I'm long. He goes, why are you long? He goes, because it's going up. And then the allocator asked him, so when are you going to get out? And he goes, when it stops going up. And then he looks at me and he says, I guess that's not really the best way to raise money. It's not very exciting. And so even to this day, people like to tell a story, but what matters is more than anything is discipline and risk management. So what we try to do is take that personality of discipline, mechanistic approach to markets and build models. You have to trade your own personality. So coming up in the Tudor world, we're not high volatility, big drawdown type people. Our systems were more shorter term in nature, call it four to seven days. And historically, markets spend a lot of time going nowhere and then they reprice. So what you try to model is what's that trigger for a repricing. And one thing that's clear when you build models is that your initial risk has to be a lot less than you think. Full circuit going back to baseball, because if you're a 250 hitter, I in a system, but your risk rewards are okay. You may make some money over the course of the year, but if that one year you hit 330, you're an all-star. So on any given trade, the probability is you're going to be wrong, but you have to continue to get up at bat. And that's one of the advantages of a system because it forces you to keep your discipline and the markets are always trying to get you to lose your discipline. If you keep your discipline, you have a chance of success. Now, when there's really outlier moves, that's where a systematic approach is best. So if you go back in history, nobody thought that Japanese government bond yields, when they hit 2%, we're going to go to 1%, which we're going to go all the way down to zero. So a lot of discretionary traders fight that and maybe they take some small losses, but that systematic trader will continue to stay long. Why? Because Japanese bond prices are going up and they continue to stay long until they go down. I think you mentioned to me once that Paul actually kept his badge while you were starting Tudor. I'm interested in how his relationship to the market evolved and when it became more committed to systematic trading. The reason Paul kept his badge is because he was an entrepreneur. When we started, when he started Tudor in September of 84 and I joined in, in early 85, I, I had a salary. He had to pay me. We didn't have enough assets under management to do that. And so there were times where he would sort of say, okay, I'm going to, I need to go down to the floor because I need to try to make some money to pay the overhead to start Tudor Investment Corporation. You know, that's one of the things, whether you look at Apple or Amazon or Tudor, people look back from success and think, oh my God, it was a straight line. 
It's not. There's points along the way where we had high volatility. People were scared of us. By the way, we were one of the, Paul was one of the first early discretionary traders coming out of the 70s, if you recall, because of the high inflation, trend followers did really well. And some people were skeptical. Well, what do you mean? You don't have a system. How do we follow? How do we know? And of course, that was the innovation and his strength. And more than anything is besides being a great trader is the risk management aspect to it. And so he wanted to try to help develop and take that and diversify it into a systematic approach. So we had all this data, we had this insight, and that's kind of where we developed it. Or as we used to say, we work so hard because you don't want to work. How did your relationship with Paul evolve over the years as that firm grew? Well, I think the thing about Paul and I is we kind of grew up together and he was very insightful. And so we were a, a tiny firm and then we started to raise some money and have some success and get some notoriety. First, we bought in a very accomplished internal finance person because we were starting to do fund accounting. And then after we had success, we bought in Mark Dalton who became the president of Tudor. And we evolved. It's funny. He got married in January of 89. I got married in October of 89. He had a daughter as his first child. I had a daughter as his first child. And then I remember this discussion sort of coming out of the 80s and Wall Street movie and everything else. And I think we were having dinner one night and this might've been right around the time when Mark was hired and the three of us looked at it and said, okay, we want to have a business, a place where we would want our daughters to work. And that was an epiphany. And I think we were one of the really early firms culturally to try to make it so that old sort of boys club from the 80s as you started out was not going to continue. And I think to this day, to Paul's credit and to discredit, a lot of the really good senior people and some of the PMs are women. Tell me about how investment decisions were made at the firm. What were the Monday meetings like? The reason that we got along in, I think, always is that we never had, I told you so, attitude. I think in a trading firm, you can't, this is my belief, you can't trade by consensus. Paul's the boss. Paul is the ultimate trigger puller. And so we would talk, we would lay out scenarios. And if he believed in it, then that was something. He would do if he didn't believe in it. He wouldn't do it. Oftentimes, you're wrong a lot. He's a better trader than I am, right? If I knew the exact low and the exact high and I gave it to him, I'd, he'd still make more money because markets don't go up or down in a straight line. And so that was the respect. I was the head of research. He was the head of the firm, the CIO. He would make that decisions. And the reason we got along was because of that respect. I always like to say the difference between a trader and an analyst is an analyst never gets stopped out on the low tick. And in trading, in life, you're going to be selling the low a lot more than you're going to be buying it. And that's something that, like in baseball, you're going to strike out. You have to mentally accept that and you have to be mentally tough. Paul is one of those people who is amazingly and mentally tough and also forward looking, which is how we started the Robin Hood Foundation because we're like, okay, New York's been great to us. We want to get back to New York. 
I'm curious how the data landscape has changed over the years and how easy was it for you folks to get data back then? Was it just high, low, close? Is data today just table stakes or can you still get an edge? So two great questions. So initially when we were back and working with the marker, getting books and typing in the data, it was only open, high, low, close. At that point in the mid eighties, there were firms and exchanges that started letting you dial up internet. Now, again, the one thing that we invested in T1 lines to have faster communications, to bring in data. And then we were starting to collect intraday, not tick by tick, because you didn't have the capacity to do that, but maybe every 15 minutes or so. Now today, that type of data is, is ubiquitous. Of course, it's, it's easy to get but it's what you do with it and how you interpret it. So it's a art and a science. As I'm always fond of saying, if you want to know what happened yesterday, I'm your man. I pretty much get it 100% right. But what does that have to do with tomorrow and the day after tomorrow where the uncertainty goes? So it's how you use that data. And, and so optimizing to predict yesterday, which is where a lot of systems do. So you'll start finding, because this has been such a strong year for trend followers, there'll be more and more people coming out trying to raise money for a new type of trend following model. Strategies, markets go through different cycles. Now, personally, I think that we are in a very different cycle in the start of a longer term cycle of particularly in interest rates if we want to have that kind of discussion. So the most important thing is that if you're a researcher like I was, your boss needs to be supportive of what you're doing because you're going to be running around and you're going to come up with some ideas and you might work all weekend on something and the market opens at 930 and by 20 to 10, you got to throw it in the trash can. That's the support that I got from Paul saying, okay, this one was a bust. That doesn't mean you give up. You don't want to be the person that pulls the funding from Thomas Edison two weeks before he discovers a light bulb. Do you have any advice for people running large research teams? Be patient. When you're doing research, you have to really be patient and you have to give enough. Nobody's going to do good research if you're standing behind them, breathing down their neck with that patience. You just have to have confidence in the quality of human capital that you've brought together, be there as a sounding board in particular, and then let that process go. And then at some point you may say, okay, this isn't working, but you have to be more patient than you would normally think, particularly when you're trying to model or you're looking at, at new data sets. Because again, you're trying to forecast an uncertain world where history by definition is certain. One of the books you used to have new employees read is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre. Why did you think a book written when stock quotes were written on chalkboards was relevant? Well, it's still relevant today because in the discretionary trading world, the mental approach is as relevant today as it was then, as it is and will continue to be. I think traders were in a lot of ways ahead of their time, right? So you had trading coaches, trading psychiatrists, performance coaches. You have performance coaches in sports because at the margin, 
You're trying to enhance your performance in a way that intersects with the trader's personality. So even though the story of Jesse Livermore, and as you know, he ended up making a lot of money, losing a lot of money and taking his own life at the end. But his insights were tremendous. They're still relevant today. And I think every individual that's participating in the market needs to try to continue to understand themselves. And that's a difficult process. It's one that we all, myself, are constantly trying to work on because you always feel at some point like an idiot. If I have a young trader and they have a really bad day where maybe it's they'll come to me and they'll be in my office and put their head, you know, hands on their face and they'll go, why the hell am I in this business? And I'm like, well, here's the thing. You can get out of the business, get out of all your positions. You'll mentally feel great, but you have no chance of coming back if you retire. But many people, individuals themselves, they buy a stock, it goes down. They don't have a discipline. Then they get out and that's it. They've done their experiment. They thought it was going to be easy. You have to have that discipline to take that loss, to reflect on what your failures were, and then get back up to bat. And for many, that's not doable. You think the concept of tape rating is still relevant? Do you think that a certain trader's intuition is helpful in the markets? Absolutely. I don't know if I would call it tape rating. It's a piece. It's a data point. Every tick is a data point and it's a weight of the evidence that you put together. And so when I was doing research and people would come to me and they'd be like, it's a full moon. You should be selling soybeans. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, but I'll tell you what you go back. We know that you can get all the history of every full moon and you get me all the soybean data for that contract and let's run a model and see if there's any efficacy to that assumption. 99% it's not. A lot of research is all about disproving wives' tales and you see that in the markets all the time. So that's where sort of tape reading comes to the, okay, is this relevant? Is it? not relevant. Is this confirming what I think should be taking place in the market? So the more data you have, the better. But what you can't do is have so much data that you just end up in paralysis by analysis. Talk to me about going out on your own in 1995 with Computer Trading Corp. What was your feeling at the time? What was it like to be a first-time entrepreneur? So again, I was so thankful to Paul and Mark Dalton for seating me and having a team that I worked with for many years and, and coming out there and building that. And that was sort of the diversification. He was a more discretionary trader. These were all systems, but it was tough because living what I just said was when Paul's the boss and we we're having a really shitty day, right? I could walk down to his office and sit on his couch and he as the boss would be, okay, you know, this is the life you chose, this is what's going on and so forth and so on, right? The manager has got to be uplifting. When you're the boss on your own, you've got to do that. And that's an adjustment because you have to take 100% blame for all the failures. So success is in particularly in model building and trading. But if you're going to be a good manager, good leader. I always like to say loyalty comes from the top down, not from the bottom up, which is 
just because they're receiving a paycheck doesn't mean they should be loyal to you. The loyalty from the top is what are their career interests? What's the culture of the organization? And do I have the interests of my employees at heart? And, and so I did realize, because that's not what I was doing, what a great job Paul and Mark had done. And I had to learn that on my own. And that was a transition. It's a different type of pressure. We were fortunate. We, we had some success and particularly when you think about this period in volatility, 1998, if you remember LTCM and that Christ, that was an unbelievably favorable period for our type of strategy. So up to that point where Tudor was an investor and supporter, I still felt that I was tethered to the mothership. But once we sort of distinguished ourselves with that performance and outside investors saw that, that's when we started to reach escape velocity. Looks like at some point while you were at CTC, you decided to start focusing on cultivating investment talent and finding interesting traders and seeding those folks. In that time frame, there was a bit of a transition. So for me, as I was getting there, Congress passed the Commodity Futures Modernization Act in 2000. And they set up the ability to trade single stock futures. And the chairman of the CFTC under President Clinton was Bill Rayner, one of the founders of Greenwich Capital, really great guy. And they bought him in to help start the single stock futures exchange. That was something that I thought, wow, futures, new markets, getting in on the ground floor would be great. So at that point, I left CTC. CTC did a revenue share joint venture with a hedge fund manager that was starting his own hedge fund, more long short equity. And he wanted to use CTC as a diversification. The team there, they all liked each other. It wasn't a solo thing. And that was really great. So I got to get in on the ground floor of what I thought was a new exchange idea and continue to be able to have a revenue participation of the success of CTC. What I didn't realize, which is another humbling experience in life, is that the hedge fund long short equity guy would blow up in the NASDAQ crash of 2001 into 2002. And that wasn't taken into account by models of revenue diversification. So with that, he went, let people go and sort of the CTC models as they were away. So I worked on one Chicago, like a lot of things in life, I couldn't hold on to a job because Tomas Petterfee from Interactive Brokers came in and bought a chunk of it. And at that point I left, I was chairman of One Chicago at that time. And that's when I said, okay, where are we? And I joined with a team of young guys. At that point I started transitioning, I guess, from being a player to a coach and that these people who were younger and came out of Spear Leeds and was bought by Goldman Sachs and were really, really good traders, that this was the environment to try to develop, nurture, and coach the next generation of traders. So how do you pick a good systematic manager versus discretionary? You know, when you ask these tough questions, I kind of like to say, hey, let's put this on pause for a few hours so I can think about a coherent answer. So you're not going to necessarily give me that option. The irony of a lot of these things is that, and I said early, that trading has to reflect your own personality. So you get to see that a little bit more on the discretionary side, but if they both start with data and the approach, 
the situation with the systematic. So discretionary, you have history, you can go in there, you can do Monte Carlo simulations, you can look at volatility, you have a lot of discussions with them in terms of, well, how do you deal with trading size? How do you deal with risk management? All these things that are so important on the discretionary side. On the systematic side, they should all be embedded. But the key is making sure that the system itself is not optimized because as we said, we can explain yesterday perfectly. So if someone comes into me and says, well, you know, I'm using a 29.2765 moving average, I'm going to be a little skeptical, right? Because if it doesn't work at 29 itself and it doesn't work at 30, you kind of know that it was optimized. But the most important thing is I've never in my entire life had someone come to me with a systematic track record that was bad. They're all amazing. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything with that. I need to see how it performs real time. And I say to them, the only time I'd ever give money to a system without a real-time track record is if you came to me and said, this has a minus two sharp, it can only get better. Because what happens, they all have two sharps and they can only get worse. So the key for a system is making sure that you, the systematic and real-time, that you track them and that the epsilon between the real-time data with the signals and what the system would say is small. The smaller that is, the more confidence you have in the system and therefore the less sort of real-time history. So, and that means it's got to be a little bit more active trading system. So if, it, if it's a system that makes a trade every once in a while, it's not something for me because you've got to take years before you can validate it. You've worked with some tremendously successful traders over the years. How does success affect good traders? Well, going back to the baseball analogy, you have to love it and you can't let success affect your approach. If you've had success and you get lazy, you're not going to have success in the future. So the best traders in the world, they love what they're doing and they work hard every day and they don't take the last trade to the next trade for granted, which is why generally as you have success like sports and elsewhere, you look to diversify because other things impact your life, whether that's having a family, whether that's having in our case where we try to do and, and Paul is very active in, in the not-for-profit world, other passions that what are your priorities? And of course, as you get older and have a family and do that, some of them change a little bit. So you want to diversify, bringing your team a little bit more support. So all the things that you were doing on your own previously, you can have a little help with, and then you can have a more balanced life. And I think that's a real success for a good trader as they get older is maintaining that balance and realizing it continues to be every day a humbling business. Do you think they handle their own wealth well, their own pocketbooks? I do, though. I think that's the flip side of that. So like I'm sitting in front of the screen all day, I'm trading. I want to diversify away from that. So then maybe they get more involved in VC or private equity, and that's not their expertise. So if they just do it on their own, that's not great. But if they bring in the right team, and many of the successful ones have done that, then it's a good diversifying approach to the marketplace and handling their wealth. 
better. I don't know any successful person that goes, okay, you know what? I don't want to trade anymore. I'm going to put all my money in one stock and hopefully it goes to the moon. So I want to spend some time on Robinhood as an organization. But first of all, how much money has Robinhood given away? So since its inception, we've given well over a billion dollars to New York not-for-profits. And Robinhood was, it's probably the proudest thing in my life. And I hope my kids don't listen to this, but kids are there and they're important. But when you, when you think about who you are in New York City, the greatest city in the world, and, and one reason for that is because of its large philanthropic culture, not just with Robinhood, but all across the city and many for ones. The early history of Robin Hood, it seems like it was a bit seat of the pants. How did that get started? You were all busy professionals. Well, I like to say in the first year with myself and David Salzman and Paul and Glenn Dubin, we were in Paul's apartment. And that first year, we gave away about $67,000. Last year, we gave away over $150 million. But I think that's one of the, the great insights, again, of the leadership and the team is, okay, we know something about markets and how to make money, but we don't know really anything about the not-for-profit world. Let's go find the best people that know something about not-profits. And so we were fortunate enough to get Jeffrey Canada, our own children's own at the time, and Marion Wright Edelman from Children's Defense Fund and Mary McCormick from the Fund for the City of New York. These were people that were experts in the city and not-for-profits in general. And then we started to hire some staff. So we built an organization, which to this day is known for rigorous data, discipline, decision-making, and the hard decisions. It's easy to give money away. The hard part is, do you give them a second grant? Are they performing? And then you have a limited budget. So how do you allocate? If I have a dollar to give away and I've got 10 different not-for-profits, how do I decide who gets that dollar? Do I give a dime to everybody? Do I give 50 cents? So these are really decisions that I think that Robinhood has grappled with over the years. And every organization is only as good as your human talent. And we've been fortunate to have some unbelievably good human talent at Robinhood. I think a lot of my family office listeners have foundations or they work at nonprofits. And one of the challenges of a successful nonprofit is growth and becoming too bureaucratic and too cumbersome to work effectively. How have you folks dealt with that over the years? Robinhood was sort of the first big fund of funds for not-for-profits, right? Where we do the research and analytics, and then we select the, what we think are high quality direct service organizations and fund them. In the family office space, they have a similar type issue. So I'm going to put a plug in for Robinhood and say, you should be even coming to us. And if you're like, well, we give away a lot of money. We don't want to give to Robinhood. I'm like, yeah, but you should be utilizing our data analytics and decision-making process for you to help make better allocation decisions if it intersects with our space, which we do and our mission is mobility from, from poverty. And we certainly don't have a monopoly on ideas. But again, you have to be patient. You have to do your due diligence. You have to get out there in the community. Reading a grant report might be a great way to start. It's a little bit like saying, okay, I'm going to look at the spreadsheet of data from this system. So if it's terrible, you can get rid of it. But 
to determine whether or not it's really a good one, you've got to start doing a lot more due diligence and data collecting. And that's one of the strengths of Robinhood. Did you read Greg Zuckerman's book about Jim Simons? Yes. I sit on the, the board of Math for America with Jim Simons. Do you think he captured Jim well? I do. I think Jim is really, really another one of the really good guy in this business. And what he's done market-wise, trading-wise, there's no reason to talk about it because it stands on its own. But again, what he's tried to do philanthropically is also a testament to him and his personality. And what do you think he does differently? What do you think he brings to the table that you haven't seen at maybe some of the other nonprofits you've been involved in? Well, a lot of really successful people, you know, it's sort of the buy versus build. He's an entrepreneur. He likes to build and it's hard to, what is that secret sauce? Well, that's hard to say. When I talk about Jim Simons and I have the honor of being chair of the audit committee of Math for America and I say, Jim Simons has a math theorem named after him. In the history of the world, there's very few people that have math theorems named after him. By definition, there are a lot less who are alive. And so he takes the same type of approach in the area which I'm involved in, which is where we're trying to make math and science teachers a community and keep them there and develop them and offer courses that they can use to learn and take back to the classrooms. And we deal with the public schools here in New York City. And it's been so successful that I think the National Science Foundation and part of this last piece of legislation may have an opportunity to try to pilot some of this across the country, which is essential because as we've seen, there's a major teacher shortage. And that's Jim's vision. He says he has his success. Why? Well, because he had great teachers and professors along the way, and he wants to make teaching more satisfactory to them as a whole. You've been involved many times over the years with regulators, the CFTC, the Board of Trade, the Brady Commission. What do you think about crypto regulation and where do you think it's going? I thought about crypto like a lot of new markets. There's two things. There's regulation and there's the investing side. On the investing side, it's like computers in the 80s, the internet in the 90s, all these cannabis stocks in the 2000s. Whenever you have a great idea, I mean, you can go back to automobiles and radios in the 20s. You have low barriers to entry. You have a lot of capital coming into a marketplace. You're going to have a ton of failures. And for me, not being an expert, I'm like, I'm going to sit back. I want to wait and see. You want to be the ones who survive. Or you want to be the guy that's buying when it goes from five to 10, not from 10 to five, because most of them go out of business. So as that said, I think the technology is there and particularly in blockchain and we'll have a lot of innovations and, and benefits. On the regulatory side, it's absolutely necessary because you want to have rules for the road. When you have complete chaos, if you don't have stoplights, you don't have speed limits and people are going to constantly be crashing and butting their heads up against each other. And what's worse is when it comes to money, and you don't have rules and regulations, some nefarious things will happen as we've seen since the dawn of time when it comes to that. So it's important to me to have what I call not prescriptive regulation because that's difficult because the world is evolving. You want to have principle type of regulation and having been a derivatives futures person, I'm a fan and supporter of the CFTC. You've been a close student of the Fed for a long time. Do you think the Fed can engineer a soft landing? 
So the flippy answer to that is, of course, yes, there's a non-zero probability that they can engineer a soft landing. Is it likely? I'm skeptical of that because I, I think that you're dealing with a, a worldwide economy with tremendous amounts of uncertainty. It's a very open system. It's not a closed system. It's hard to control it. There's, if I can walk out for one second here towards the end, it's better to have an improbable possibility than an impossible probability. And I think the Fed being able to engineer a soft landing gets into the impossible probability. And you need to have positive probabilities for success. I think it's extraordinarily low probability. The world is too complicated. I said at the very beginning to think that they're going to be able to take the inflation airplane and as it approaches 2%, just land it nicely on the runway and not shoot under that is going to be the most challenging period. And oh, by the way, if you overshoot with rates going up in a high debt environment, the deflationary risk, I think, is larger than the consensus right now. And I think it's more dangerous than slightly elevated inflation. Well, Peter, it's been great having you sharing your insights with us today. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.